The scripture reading for this morning is from Genesis chapter 23. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, four hundred shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was at the east of Mamre, the field which, with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are coming to the end of our study. Things are winding down. Uh, here in chapter 23, Sarah dies and is buried. In chapter 24, a wife will be found for Isaac. And then in chapter 25, Abraham dies. And it's worth asking, how did they die? I don't mean what illness or accident befell them. I'm, I'm not interested in the manner of their death so much as I am in their state of mind. In that sense, how did they die? Did they die disappointed? I'm not talking about the very moment of their death. I'm not talking about that moment when they drew their final breath. But, but as the end drew near, in their final months or weeks or days, whenever they realized that their time was near, was there any sense of disappointment? It seems like a fair question. 
For 60 years, they had been waiting for fulfillment of the promise. God had promised Abraham offspring and land. And on the day Sarah died, they had one child and not one square inch of land to their name. So did Sarah die disappointed? Abraham would live many more years. He would have more children, though it would only be through Isaac that the promise would continue. And when Abraham died, the only land that he owned was the land that we read about in this passage, the field with the cave where Sarah was buried. He would join her there. So much had been promised. So little had been fulfilled. Did Abraham die disappointed? Will you die disappointed? You may know that your time is near, or you may be you know, reflecting on the fact that it is near for every one of us. James 4.14 says that we are like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And as you think about your life now in light of that day, with all the hopes and the dreams that remain unfulfilled, with the plans that didn't pan out and the failures along the way, do you run the risk of ending your days in despair, lamenting what never was? Will you die disappointed? I think it might be one of the most important questions you can ask yourself. How you answer that question says everything about how you think about life, about death, and about the life to come. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you are living consistent with your beliefs, and if you slow down long enough to reflect on it, then you have to admit that your life now is a meaningless Meaningless attempt to not die disappointed. But if you are a follower of Christ, everything has changed. The way you think about life and about death and about the life to come has been completely transformed in Christ. And if you are living consistent with your beliefs, if you are living in the reality of who you are as a child of God, as an inheritor of the promises of God that are all yes and amen in Christ, then you will not die disappointed. No Christian need ever die disappointed. So let's spend some time this morning thinking about life, and thinking about death, and thinking about the life to come. There's three things that I want us to consider. First, the separation of death. The separation of death. Second, the preparation of life. And then third, the hope that extends beyond the grave. The separation of death, the preparation of life, and the hope that extends beyond the grave. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we do pray, O oh God, that you would be with us. Lord, we pray that you would teach us from your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would be poured out upon us. Lord, we pray that you would incline our hearts towards you. Lord, that, that all the things that we tend to focus on would in this time fall away, that our gaze might be directed toward you, that our hearts might be set upon you, that we would be ready to listen to you. 
and receive from you the grace and the mercy that you offer to us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, the separation of death. Read with me again verses one and two. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Abba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham and Sarah had walked by faith side by side. They had sojourned together. It had been 60 years that they had been in the land of Canaan. 60 years, at least, since they had left Ur of the Chaldeans. We don't know how long they were married prior to that, but they had a history together. They had suffered together. They had experienced hardship and failure and joy together. Sarah is commended throughout the Bible as an example of faith. In Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 and 2, God says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, will commend Sarah as a godly example. Abraham and Sarah were co-laborers together. They were were seeking to follow the Lord by faith together through their wandering. Sarah in Hebrews chapter 11 is numbered along with many others as those of whom the world was not worthy. Sarah is a heroine of the faith, even as Abraham is a hero of the faith. And Abraham has lost his partner in ministry. He's lost his co-laborer. He's lost his closest companion. Sarah is separated from Abraham. And he mourned. We saw it in verse 2. He mourned and then the author of Genesis wants to make sure we don't miss the point. He mourned and he went in to weep for her. Death had brought a separation that Abraham felt deeply. And for the first time in the account of Abraham, we're told that Abraham wept. Death brings a painful separation. The tears of Abraham ought to remind us of the tears of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Mary and Martha were grieving because of the separation of death that was brought about through the the death of Lazarus. And Jesus comes on the scene, and you remember, he weeps, even though he knows he is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He wails. In fact, the the Greek words that are used to describe uh, Jesus' reaction before the tomb of, of Lazarus is that of you know, snorting with anger and, and wailing. This is, this is the idea of how deeply the, the death of Lazarus affected Jesus. Why? Because Jesus knew death to be an intruder in this world. He knew that death brought a separation that was never intended to take place. A separation between loved ones a separation within your very self as your, your soul is separated from your body at death. So please don't believe the lie that real Christians, mature Christians, don't grieve deeply when death comes close. If anything, Christians should feel the separation most acutely. We know death isn't 
natural. We know how things were meant to be. That's why we grieve over the evil in the world. We grieve over what the shootings in East Buffalo and in, at the church in Southern California. We grieve over the, the shooting in Ovalde, Texas this past week. We grieve because we know that this is not the way things were meant to be. We grieve whenever death draws near. As, as, as uh, Kurt prayed earlier, we mingle our tears with the tears of those who've lost children and loved ones and friends and coworkers and family. We grieve. We grieve deeply. But as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we grieve with hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 says, we do not grieve as those with no hope. Let's state that the other way. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. Hope does not cancel our grieving. Hope is mingled throughout. It's, 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 it rises up from within, but does not in any way eliminate our grieving. These two things are held out together. We grieve. We grieve with hope. Death brings a separation that we feel acutely, that Abraham felt acutely, that Jesus felt acutely before the tomb of Lazarus. But we grieve as those with hope. Secondly, let's consider the preparation of life. Now, I'm going to recommend two books, and I'm, I'm looking at Catherine right now, and, and where's Eric? Eric? Eric asked me a long time ago, Mark, whenever you recommend a book, would you please let us know in advance? We'll get a copy to put out on the, the table, and come on. <laughs> You're asking a lot, brother. And Catherine, I need to ask you to make sure these get, you know, email, all that. Um, because you can write them down, but you know. So the first book I want to recommend is a book uh, by Nancy Guthrie. The book is titled, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go, Facing Death with Courageous Confidence in God. So just, if you think of Guthrie, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go, just Google that, you'll find it. Nancy Guthrie edits excerpts from pastors and from suffering saints throughout history, from letters that they've written, books they've written, sermons that they've delivered, um, you know, everyone from Martin Luther to Martin Lloyd-Jones to Michael Horton to Tim Keller and Johnny Erickson Tata. The book is just, and it's a small book, it's a thin little book, but it's just a collection of two, three, four page, you know, excerpts from these great works. Uh, throughout history that help us think about death. I cannot recommend highly enough that everyone get a copy of this book and read it. You know, obviously those uh, senior saints among us, this is one you want to hold on to, but those younger saints among us, please don't think that this is a book to put off until later. J.I. Packer uh, is one of the authors for whom she draws an excerpt, and the title of the excerpt that she gave to Packer's work is this, only when you know how to die can you know how to live. And he says this in that excerpt, in every century until our own, Christians saw this life as a preparation for eternity. Medievals, Puritans, and later evangelicals thought and wrote much about the art of dying well. And they urged that all of life should be seen as preparation for leaving it behind. Did you catch that? The purpose of life 
is preparing to die well. What does that mean? Does it mean dying without regrets? I, th- I think as Christians, we, we have that opportunity to, to you know, bring our, our, our regrets before the Lord and, and trust that he brings redemption. Does it mean dying having made peace with your past? Well, in, in Christ, we have opportunities to pursue reconciliation with those we have wronged and those who have wronged us because of the reconciliation we have found in Christ. So those are all, those are all good things, but I don't think that dying well means primarily something that happens as we look back. I think dying well is more of a forward-looking thing. I think dying well means dying ready to meet the one for whom you've been waiting. I think dying well means dying ready to meet the one for whom you've been waiting. So how does one prepare to die well? I think the answer is by learning to wait well. Jesus touches on this in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25. Go back and read it later. If not, you're familiar with it. You remember it. Um, The historical context, what was happening that enabled that parable to make sense to the listeners to which he gave it. Um, On a wedding day uh, amongst the Jews at that time, the groom would go to the house of the bride to get her. The, The bridesmaids would be there with her. The groom would make his way to the bride's house. And then he and the whole wedding party would, would joyfully process back to his house. And then he would, um, you know, host a wedding feast at his house. And in the parable, the groom is delayed for some reason. You know, we're not told why the members of the wedding party didn't know why. But he didn't arrive when he was supposed to arrive. And they didn't know when he would arrive. It could be minutes, it could be hours, it could be days. No idea. In the middle of the night, however, the groom does arrive. And five of the, the maid servants are ready. They've got plenty of oil in their lamps. They're ready for the procession. And five weren't. They hadn't prepared themselves. They weren't ready as they were waiting for the groom to come. They were out of oil. They didn't have time to go find any. They weren't ready for the procession. And and then the meaning is this, as Jesus explained it. Jesus is the groom who will come for his church. He is the one who will return. And we, as his people, don't know when. We don't know how long we'll wait. But the question must be answered, will we be ready when he comes? Will we be ready to meet him? That was the dynamic that was going on in Abraham and Sarah's life. Their entire life had been spent waiting, waiting on the fulfillment of the promise. God had been preparing them, refining them, increasing their faith. We know that that work of preparation was completed because in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews says of all those who are listed, including Abraham, including Sarah, these all died in faith, looking to the promise that had not yet been fulfilled in their lifetime. So let me make another book recommendation to you. The second book is titled Seasons of Waiting, Walking by Faith When Dreams Are Delayed. And it's written by Betsy Child Howard. Seasons of Waiting, Walking by Faith When Dreams Are Delayed. Now this book, you know, the audience is women. She's writing to women, but please men, pick this book up. 
the, the exposition from Scripture, the exhortation from Scripture is excellent. The, the, um, the application is often geared toward things that women experience, but, but it's not hard for us to make application, men. So please consider buying that book as well. Seasons of Waiting, Walking by Faith When Dreams Are Delayed. And the message of this, basic, the book basically boils down to this. Life is marked by waiting. We wait for suffering to end when it comes to sickness, for instance, or frailty as we approach death. We wait for dreams to be fulfilled, the, the dream of a spouse if you're single, the dream of a child if you're not able to conceive, the dream of a prodigal returning home if, if that's been your experience. And what Betsy points out is that we're tempted to learn to wait in those moments so that the waiting will end. If I just learn my lesson, the lesson that God has for me during this time of waiting, then the waiting will end. God will bring to fulfillment the, the thing that I've been longing for. I'll, I'll, the prodigal will come home. I'll be able to conceive. I'll get married. The, the healing will come, whatever the case may be. And what she points out in that book is that God has another purpose in our waiting. He may bring that desired end. He may bring the spouse, the child, the prodigal home, health where there's sickness, but he may not because he's doing something else or wanting to do something else in the midst of our waiting. In our waiting, he is seeking to win our hearts to him. In our waiting, he deepens our longing for him. In our waiting, he gets us ready to be with him. Life is marked by suffering and by disappointment. In it, we learn what it means to take up our cross daily and die daily, as Jesus said. And as Charles Spurgeon said, he who dies daily dies well. A lifetime of trusting God through the trials of life prepares you for the day you will finally meet the one you come to realize you have been longing for and waiting for all along. Let's turn third to the hope beyond the grave. Abraham's hope was so steadfast in God's promise that he had Sarah buried in Canaan. Now, that may seem obvious to you, but you need to recognize that that would not have been obvious to him for two reasons. First, the land wasn't yet his. And second, the normal custom was to bury your dead in their ancestral homeland. It would have been expected for Abraham to take Sarah and return to Ur and bury her there. Even if that, you know, upon the return and the burial, he himself returned to Canaan. It would have been normal for him to say, I've got to go back to Ur. She has to be buried in our ancestral homeland. Abraham said, no, this is now our ancestral homeland. God has promised Canaan. He's promised this land to me, my offspring, and their offspring after them. And so Sarah will be buried here. Abraham believed that death would be no obstacle to the fulfillment of God's promise. 
Did you hear that? Abraham believed that death would be no obstacle to the fulfillment of God's promise. His hope in God's promise extended beyond the grave. For Sarah, for him, Abraham made sure that he was buried here. Not just so he could be with Sarah, but so that he could be in the land. (laughs) Isaac would be buried in this cave. Jacob would be buried in this cave. Joseph would give instructions at the time of the enslavement in Egypt. He would give instructions so that when their enslavement ended, his bones were to be taken to Canaan because that's where God was going to take his people so that he could be buried in the land. All of them looked beyond the grave with hope to the fulfillment of the promise. God will keep his promise. Death will not get in the way. That's what's happening here. I'm reminded of um, Alec Matir's definition of hope. And I've, I've shared it with you a couple times, but I'm going to keep sharing it because this is something important to hold on to. Alec Matir, uh, the, the theologian, made a contrast between biblical hope and worldly hope that we, that we need to keep you know, at the forefront of our thinking. Worldly hope has to do with certainty of time and uncertainty with respect to outcome. So classic example, you have a, uh, an appointment, a doctor's appointment, a job interview, whatever the case may be. Let's go with the job interview. You know what time the job interview is. You don't know what the outcome will be. You don't know if you get the job or not. Certainty with respect to time, uncertainty with respect to outcome. Matir points out the biblical hope flips that around. Certainty with respect to outcome. Uncertainty with respect to time. That's the kind of hope that Abraham evidenced. Certainty with respect to outcome. God's promise will be fulfilled. Uncertainty with respect to time. I don't know when. I do know this. Death isn't going to get in the way. (laughs) That's hope that extends beyond the grave. When your hope is set on Christ, you realize not only that death brings you one step closer to the fulfillment of the promises, but more importantly, death brings you into the nearer presence of the one who made the promises. Death brings you closer to Jesus. And the ascension of Jesus Christ confirms this. It assures us of it. Jesus, when he, you know, prior to his death and his resurrection and his ascension, he said to his disciples, I am going away to prepare a place for you and I will come for you. That place is waiting. He will return for us. Our life now is not all that there is. Please stop living as though it were. Please do battle in your heart when it comes to seeing this life as the best it'll ever be. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. Death is not the end. Death is just the end of the beginning. I love the the picture that Jonathan Edwards gives concerning what the life of heaven will be like. When we're finally in the presence of God and experience his fullness without sin, He talks about the love of God being like an ocean and our heart's capacity to comprehend his love being like a thimble. And he says that the life of heaven will mean that the thimble is full. 
We will be filled up with knowledge of the love of God. We won't have all the knowledge of the love of God because God's love is vast as an ocean. But our capacity to know and love God will be full up. But it doesn't end there. The life of heaven for all eternity means that the, the thimble will grow into a pail and then a bucket and then like that 275-gallon water tote that's back in the community garden. And then I'll just keep growing and growing. Our heart's capacity to know, love, know and love God will only grow forever. Death is not the end. It's the end of the beginning. The best is yet to come. C.S. Lewis captured this so well at the end of the last battle, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, the Pavenzi children are with Aslan. They are in the true Narnia. And I am not going to do a spoiler here for you that have little kids that have not, you, know, you haven't yet finished the series, but let's just say the Pavenzis learn something rather interesting about themselves and their parents. Just leave it at that. And as they are... They're talking to Aslan, Aslan, of course, the lion, the Christ figure, and they learn what's happened. Their, their hearts begin to swell with joy. Aslan says something to them. He says to them, these kids who are used to being in school and, like all kids, waiting for the school year to end, he says to them, the term has ended. The holidays are here. He says to them, the dream is ended. This is mourning. And then Lewis ends the book like this. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Hannah, Mary, all of those who have died in Christ have opened that book. They're beginning to experience the fullness of joy that comes in that great page-turner that is the life of heaven. That awaits us. It awaits you. Anchor your hope in Christ. As you think about life now, death, and the life that is to come, know that God has a love for you and he will not let you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this truth from your word. We pray that you would help us to live today in the full knowledge that this is not the most important day that we'll ever live. This is not the, the best day that we'll ever enjoy. No matter how good or bad the rest of this day is, and every day well, we draw a breath that follows, it is only the prelude. It's only the introduction. It's only the cover page the great story of which you have drawn us into to be a part is yet to come. And so then, oh God, would you help us to live our lives embodying and revealing through our conduct, through our words, through the way in which we love you and love others, a preview of that story 
even as we enjoy now fellowship with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.